Hello everyone. Oh, I'm so excited today because I am going to talk to somebody I've been a fan of for so long. And it's amazing we've never met before, but we met up in London about a week ago and he very sweetly agreed to come on and talk to me. It is the fabulous James Taylor. Oh, I'm so excited. Hello, James. How are you? Hi, Twiggy. How are you? I'm good. You're you're back in Massachusetts, yeah? I am. I'm back in uh, in Western Massachusetts, a, a, just a few minutes away from the uh, border with uh, New York State. So we're we're north of New York and west of Boston. And am I right in saying this is probably the most beautiful time of the year up there, right? The fall. It you know it certainly is arguably the the it's people uh, uh, will typically in the middle or towards the end of October drive up into New England to watch the the leaves change color and and it, it it's pretty glorious out there right now. I know I did it many years ago. Uh, my my first husband actually was from Ticonderoga, New York, which is a further north, I think, isn't it? So we did that drive a couple of times to see his family. And it is, it is actually, if anyone out there has never done it, put it on your bucket list because it is breathtaking. It's, there's nowhere else in the world, I don't think, that's quite as beautiful in the fall. Because our leaves yeah. change, but not to that extent, you know, not, not to the, it is breathtaking. Yeah, it, it's, there, there's something about the, you know how much things shut down for the winter mm-hmm. in in New England that makes the, uh, the and and it all it all happens very quickly in a in a sort of typically in a two week period that it goes from being sort of lush to you know over over a period of about a month or so the, the it it just uh, changes and 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 then all the leaves are gone you know it's really quite a radical change it's it's uh, something else and i and i'm I, because I have to just tell everyone that we actually met for the first time, amazingly, because we're from the same era. We've got so many mutual friends and acquaintances. We do. And I was visiting my darling friend, Wendy Asher, who's married to Peter Asher, who was your manager and brilliant producer for many, many years. And you came over to tea and we finally met after all these years. It's so weird, isn't it? We did. And and your daughter, Carly, was there with uh, with your grandson uh, Theo? That's right. And it's it's amazing that we uh, has Peter ever done the the podcast? Yeah. Oh yes, because he he. Well, I you know I've known Peter since probably since I was about seventeen, I think. And um and he's a he's a he's a wonderful storyteller, and he's you know he's done so many amazing things. I think amazing yeah. things. He's he's and he's a, such a lovely man, and and so I knew I I thought I've got to get him on. And actually, weirdly enough, I, it always makes him laugh. But my, my, when I was really, really young, before anything happened to me at sixteen, I think I was about fifteen. Um, I had a boy. Well, he was wasn't a proper boyfriend, but a boy who took me to the cinema. And at the time, Peter and Gordon's World Without Love was out the record, and he bought and I loved it, and he bought it for me as a present, and I thought. Oh, Oh, I'm in love. And then he rang me the next week to say he couldn't see me again because he couldn't afford a girlfriend and a scooter, which is like a motorbike. And he was going for the scooter. Wow. (laughs) 
So I got then Peter always made it, it always makes Peter laugh because it was you know, he bought me his song. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's that is that's 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 a delightful story. It, you know, uh, I've got I got twenty one year old uh, twin boys, and uh, one one of the things that you you sort of come up against, uh, and and then of course uh, Ben and Sally, my my older kids, uh, went through this too. You know, there's there's this period of time where where relationships and looking for a, a sort of a soulmate, you mm-hmm. know, looking for a partner, where it's a sort of a, I guess it, it just begins being a central thing and then is a central thing until you get it right all your life, you know? Absolutely. And, but, but you sort of know in the beginning when they're 18, 19, 20, when they're early 20s, probably it's too early to expect any of these things to actually pan out you know Absolutely. i mean maybe maybe back before the war when when uh, f- church and family supported young marriages you know uh you you could expect to get married young and make it stick but you know you sort of so so you've got this thing where where it, it's like a pr- uh, an absolute uh necessity like it, it's a primal drive, you know. Yeah. But at the same time, you you sort of know that it's not gonna gonna really happen because it's too early. I haven't asked you. Are you drinking your cup of tea as we're having tea together? Well, well, I am. What have you got? I have a, oh, that's a big cup. <laughs> I have a a green. Well, it's distorted by the lens of oh, this I computer. Oh, I see. But, that's right. Oh, yeah, mine. <laughs> but but it's a. Uh, it's a yeah. It's the size of my head. Yeah. No, it's a, it, it's it, it's a big lime green porcelain mug of Italian roast uh, coffee, strong and sweet. Are you, are you a coffee drinker? I am. Yeah. I don't. Well, some American people I know drink tea. The worst thing when you, as an English person, when you stay in American hotels or go to restaurants, you ask for a cup of tea, they bring you a cup with hot water in and a tea bag on the side. And that's, that's not right. how you make tea. You have to have boiling water in a pot, you know. So tea yep. in America is terrible. Every time I work over there, I always, wherever I'm staying, I get my own kettle um, so I can make a proper cup of tea. Now you're in, the reason we met last week in London is you are in the middle of a European tour, correct? And you'd just done your British gigs. I, that's right. When when you and I met, I I had just played the the um, Apollo. It used to be called the Shepherd Shepherd's Bush Apollo, but oh, or the Hammersmith. Hammersmith, Apollo, maybe yeah. It was called. Yeah, and uh, and and th- then it was called uh, Labatt's Apollo, that's and now right. it's, I think it's O2 Apollo. Yeah, now. something like that. It, it keeps changing because they have different owners. I think. I think they sell the naming rights to these places, oh, which drives okay. me nuts. Yeah. Okay. That that's a nice size space, though, isn't it? Do you, do you, uh, is that the sort of size you like? I mean, how many how many does it hold? A couple of thousand, I would a few thousand. I that's would right. think. I think it. I think it holds three thousand, but um, yeah, uh, that's we we play to about three thousand uh, generally in in Britain. A night and uh, and in, but in the states it's it's more like seven thousand or wow. ten thousand a night, depending. My well, goodness. some some places are bigger and some some smaller. But I I do like uh, I like theaters, although yeah. there's something about an arena that that uh, gets people uh, loosened up. 
in a way that that uh, I also like. Isn't it scary? I mean, I've I've played in theatres, but I've, I've never done an arena. Isn't going out in an arena so scary? Because it's so big. Or is it so big that you kind of can't see anything? <laughs> That's right. I, I think that beyond a, a couple of thousand people, it's pretty much all the same. You're you're just relating to the to to the people that you can see, and uh, actually sometimes uh, a, a smaller place will be more intimidating because it's more uh, this that you feel more sort yeah. of a connection or more scrutiny or something. Uh, I don't know. That's true. That's true. Yeah. But uh, did you get a nice reception in Great Britain? I hope you did. I think they I think they love you. I think everyone loves you around the world. Actually, I mean, your music is. Whew, amazing. Well, but, it's, um, I, hope, I hope they were I nice hope, to you. <laughs> they they were wonderful to me. We we you know it's it's lovely to to be able to. That's the best thing for me is to be able to travel to a a new exciting exotic uh, place. You know that that's just that's so different from your home and uh, a diff- and different cultures and stuff like that and and still to be able to find a, an audience there to be able to uh, work uh, you know uh, in 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 Australia or in Japan or in in Thailand you know it's uh, in in Scotland and in 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 Dublin in Paris it's just uh, it, it is well I th- I really I really think your music has touched everyone around the world and that's why when you, when you do these concerts it, it must be so lovely for your fans because they you know they love you <laughs> through through your music i mean it's it, that's that's the wonderful gift i think that uh, somebody like you know singer songwriter like yourself gives to people because that music i mean you know i grew up with your music i was a teenager when you first an older teenager, you know, and it stays with you for life. And you pass it on to your children. My daughter and my husband's son, they know your music because we always played it when they were little. Do you know what I mean? So, And I bet your audiences are different generations, aren't they? Yeah, they are. You know, they, the, the, the sort of core of the audience probably has uh, grown older and uh you know and and you can see that but then the the it's always been uh had a sort of a family aspect to it um you know it's not that it's a family general public uh, kind of rating uh on on the show so much but uh people do tend to because it's not it it doesn't make your ears bleed uh <laughs> people people tend to bring their their kids, and uh, uh, particularly uh, over here in the states, uh, um, uh, there are some summer gigs that are that are we do every essentially every year. So that gets people coming back, and they, you know, they 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 bring the families and Lovely. stuff. So so it it does sort of uh, renew itself in, in a, a most uh, a rewarding and encouraging way. How did you cope through? I've I've asked most people this because I started my podcast at the beginning of COVID. How did you cope with the of what two two and a half years where you couldn't go out and on tour? Did you did you manage it okay? Did it? I mean, how did it affect you? You know, uh, 
in the beginning, I thought it was like a snow day uh, at school where they tell you you don't have to go to school because uh, <laughs> it's it snowed last night. So I, f- I felt like I was, uh, uh, you know, like I, I, I had uh, a snow day and I was and, – and that lasted for a while. I was really – I was actually secretly sort of thrilled that I got uh, – that I, that I, you know, had had this – extra empty free time not that i don't love what i do but but uh you know it was out of my hands so i and uh our our young kids were with us at home and at one point uh, my daughter sally and her her son uh, bodie and her husband they came to stay with us as well for about three months so it it i got a lot of time with uh, with my kids that i ordinarily wouldn't have been able to expect and um so that was nice yeah that yeah, that the aspect pluses. of it was yeah, really absolutely yeah but then you know uh we we kept rescheduling work that we had agreed to do and that people were holding tickets for so uh, uh eventually for instance this european tour that that resumes uh in a week's time in milan um and and with, then we have some Italian dates, then some German dates. We go to Scandinavia, but th- that trying to reschedule those things gets more and more difficult. Oh, God, it must be because also they're not only rescheduling you and your your schedule, but presumably there's a backlog of all the other people who were meant to be on after you. Do you know what I mean? I mean, That's it right. must it's be a, a scheduling nightmare. It it really is, and and and. Then your itinerary, your your route, ends up taking you like a, a drunken spider's web, you know, like oh, just all over the place. Oh yeah. gosh! Anyway, but it's but, fun. <laughs> but but it's it's great to to the, the I I would say that the upshot is that that after you know after about six months, I said, okay, well that's that was fun, but let's get back to it, okay? And then after two years, I I really realized how much I. You know, I, I like do, do yeah. Good. How much That's I like lovely, doing actually. this. Yeah. I think yeah. I actually think it, it made us all rethink a lot of things. Actually, don't you? Because we all had to stop. We were all rushing about doing God knows what and ten million things and doing this and doing that and doing, flying here, but we couldn't. No, that's right. It's like we we were on the treadmill. It was set to a, a it, you know, some people kept secretly turning it faster and faster yeah. and uh and 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 when we got a, a chance to to uh, stop and look at everything for a second i think some of those things were worth uh, rethinking you grew up in you were born in massachusetts right your dad Am I right? He was. I've, I've done a little bit of research. Your dad was a doctor in Boston, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And your mum, I read, studied to be an opera singer. Is that right? She did. Uh, she she took uh, classes at the New England Conservatory of Music. I, they actually gave me an honorary degree there uh, oh, last how lovely. Uh, last uh, uh, May, and uh, and showed me uh, some uh, records of her having been there and oh, studied there. Yeah, that's so lovely. But she didn't yeah, go cool. on to continue that as a career, no. No, you know, my mom uh, had uh, had five kids in a six-year period of time. <gasps> oh my god! <laughs> and uh, that's and, a 
you know, it was it it was a it was a very tight grouping, and uh, you know, so uh, that was it. I, I mean, she my my dad moved us uh, down to North Carolina where where he was from, mm-hmm. and uh, f- which for my mom was was a real culture shock, but she had young children, uh, you know, constantly, and and really uh, th- there was no possible way for her to do anything other than than no. just raise us yeah. i i had yeah. i had one child and and help and i <laughs> and i right. i when she was very little i toned down what i did because you know it's just but five i could that, that is more than a full-time job yep. were, were you the first the last the middle where, where were you i was the second child born okay I'm the uh, second to the oldest of the of the group Okay, and were you were you all close as kids? Yeah, yeah, we were we were very close, and and I'd say uh, sort of isolated. Uh, we lived in the countryside in North Carolina in a small university town, uh-huh. which was really quite wonderful and and actually cosmopolitan in a way, uh, because the the faculty of the university uh, um, was recruited from all over the world, and and uh, my father actually uh, was on the. Uh, faculty of the medical school, but eventually uh, actually ran and and built a number of of programs in that school. So he himself was recruiting people from from uh, all over the place. So so in a way, it it was southern. It was small. It was sort of in, insular, but it was also uh, there was an excitement to it as there is in a in a university community. You know. So that's interesting because you said it was quite a shock for your mum. Is it? Is it very, or was it very different from her living in the north of the North America to going down to the kind of south of North? Is it? Was it that huge a change, the southern states to the northern states? It is. You know, there's there's always. Is it, do you think it still is? Yeah, I think it is. I think, I think there's always been a division between. North and South. Uh, well, this, it goes back to the Civil War, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> right, and and the Civil War, of course, was the culmination of a division. Mm. So, uh, so it's always been with us since colonial times, and and I, I think that uh, it, it drives our politics uh, today. Uh, it, it it's almost like it's been been resubscribed to that division. Uh, dividing us has political advantages for some people. Yeah. Uh, and they've they've actually purposely gone gone for that division oh, uh, to, okay. to to polarize us. But but yeah, the 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 main difference between North and South that my mother felt and felt it acutely uh, uh, was that when we moved there in 1951, it it was going to be another 15 years before the Civil Rights Act was passed. Oh wow! So. So uh, it was during uh, segregation and uh, Jim Crow uh, days of, of, uh, wow. of the, the states in the South basically legalizing uh, discrimination. And it really, it really messed with my mom. I bet. Now I can understand that. Yeah, absolutely. My goodness. So you, so you, so you kind of grew up in Carolina, really, although you were born in Massachusetts. Did you know, I don't know, I mean, were you musical at an early age or did you start writing songs or playing instruments? How did it all emerge? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, the first thing I remember uh, uh, 
playing was uh, I, I got a harmonica when I was uh, when I was little, and I I learned how to play. Um, you know, I figured out how how that worked, and I I I played that, and um, and then I my mom wanted us all all five of us to take a, a shot at learning a musical instrument to see if it stuck with any of us. Yeah. And and mine was the cello. I don't know if if mom and dad decided that or if uh, if I was uh, allowed into the decision, but I, I doubt it. I think that I was assigned the cello and uh, and I did. I studied it for four years. Oh, wow. But not very not very enthusiastically. So <laughs> I, I I didn't really learn learn the cello that well. When did you switch to guitar? <laughs> in, in, I switched to, I, I, you know, when I got to be uh, 10, 11, 12 years old, I, I noticed uh, that that was, that was the cool instrument. And, uh, mm. and I just, uh, I kept begging for one. And um, so for my 12th Christmas, I was given a, uh, a sort of a plywood uh, classical guitar. You know, nylon strings. Oh. It was a fine instrument to to uh, start with, uh, but my my brother Alex uh, immediately uh, changed it. He put steel strings on it and spray painted it blue. So, uh, <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. So did so did you did you did you self teach yourself guitar? I I did. Yeah. You know, I mean, I picked up a lot of stuff from a lot of people around me. Uh, uh-huh. I did. I, uh, I I never had formal lessons, but um, you know, uh, there was, uh, it, what is my friend, uh, my friend Wadi Wachtel, who's a guitar player in Los Angeles. Wadi, uh, refers to the great folk scare of the early sixties. And, uh, I, that was, that was what the, uh, the terrible folk music scare of the early sixties is what basically produced, produced me. And, and it was a great time too. The music was fantastic. And it was all so accessible, you know. Yeah. You could pick it up and learn it. That's the whole idea with folk music. Yeah. And you, and everywhere you went, there was a community of people learning and interpreting these songs mm. and and playing them. And uh, there were really lots of places where you could play at an open mic night, uh, where where the public uh, it gets to go up and make fools of themselves. And <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, it, it was great. So. That's really how I started, and and, uh, and particularly in the summertime, there was a, a community of people that that I hooked up with uh, at the seashore of in Massachusetts, where my where my mom uh, she had been raised in Massachusetts. Her father was a, a commercial fisherman, and and she brought us back to uh, Martha's Vineyard every year. And the vineyard has since Lucky become you. A, a, it's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I mean, at the time, it was a a, a remote and cheap vacation, you know. It was. It's, uh, it's very posh now, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's it's really it's there's we're sort of loving it to death at this point, but but. Um, Although but, it is good. I mean, I went. I've got a couple of uh, dear friends, and they've got a place on Martha's Vineyard, and I was lucky enough to be invited up there a few summers yeah. ago, and it was amazing, absolutely amazing. It, it was. But but at the at the time in in the in the fifties and and sixties, um, the vineyard was particularly the western end of it uh, was was uh, you know uh, kind of primitive by by current standards, mm-hmm. and it was uh, it it was very attractive to 
to academics and uh, writers and uh, and as, ar- ar- arty as, types, right? Art, yeah. Arty types yeah. and and lefty types <laughs> and uh, and 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 that's still the case. Uh, and it was also one of the first integrated, racially integrated communities in in the country. Oh, how wonderful! And, uh, I didn't know that. That's brilliant. Yep, it's true. It was a it was a there was a Methodist camp on the opposite end of the island from mm-hmm. from where we were at a town called Oaks Bluff, and Oak Bluffs had a. Uh, you know these the people would come every summer from uh, a re- religious community and and uh, populate this this area and it was totally integrated it was uh, it it was purposely uh, that that was a, an important point to them so there were things about it that were really quite wonderful and there were a couple of uh, of folk clubs like coffee houses mm-hmm. we, we used to call them so so you used to play there that's right so i used to play there who 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 were your musical influences as a young teenager, you know, before you kind of hit the scene? Who did you love and who did you listen to? And Well, a lot of it came from my older brother who and what his tastes were. Mm-hmm. Because uh, in North Carolina, he sort of took, a, took root in the South more than the rest of us did. My mother was really didn't want us to... She wanted to to keep us sort of culturally unattached until until we could make up our minds where we, we wanted to uh, to to what we wanted to call home. But my brother Alex, uh, he he just basically discovered black music, rhythm and blues, uh, um, the what used to be called the Chitlin Circuit in the South, uh, beach music. You know, this was was uh, uh, essentially soul music in the in the in the late 50s and, and early 60s. And uh, it was amazing, you know. Uh, so I got I got that strongly from him. And then from the community of people on the vineyard and the, during the great folk scare, uh, I was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was I was introduced to. Uh, well, thank I don't God know for the, the great folk scare. Is all I can say. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely, <laughs> it's true. It was it was a great thing, but I, you know, I I listened to all of those folk acts: uh, Ian and Sylvia, uh, uh, Bob Dylan, uh, mm. the Kingston Trio, uh, Peter Brilliant. Paul and Mary. Oh. You know, there were some that were commercial and some that were. Obscure uh, Reverend Gary Davis, uh, Sonny Terry, and Browning McGee, and the, my brother Alex was meanwhile exposing me to the, the blues and Ray Charles and Don Covey and Jackie Wilson and the Coasters. Uh, you know, just so it, it it was sort of a mix. It was like folk music, which was probably also kind of Celtic music. Yeah, you know? very much so. But isn't there must all, yeah there must be an Irish link, a Scottish link, and there must be positively. Because yep. I, I, I am a one of my obsessions is Irish music. I absolutely mm. love it, and yeah. um, you know when you go over to Ireland, you know, and you go into a pub and you get the locals playing the spoons and the drum. I mean, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, it's magical, isn't it? It really is. And they're just like local guys who, are, when we went into a pub on the west coast once, when we were just touring around on holiday. And they're just one was a fisherman and one was the butcher and and then they come in at night and they have their Guinness and they play and it's oh, absolute and it, they even had you know a couple of their wives got up and did a little dance I mean and it's just like a natural thing it's just in their blood. It, it's wonderful to see it that that sort of uh, functioning amateur 
but really strong musical thing. But it, and it's so yeah. ancient. It's so ancient. You know they've been doing it for you know centuries. Anyway, at some point, I don't know how old you were. You came. You came to live in London, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, after high school, I I went to uh, uh, which is a you know that that's that's a whole other story. But but essentially, after high school, I I went to New York with uh, someone that I knew from had known from Martha's Vineyard, a, a musician uh, who everybody calls Cooch, but his name is Daniel Korchmar and. Cooch, uh, he was a couple of years older than me, and he had been in a band the year before, which had had broken up. But he and I and a friend of ours, also from the Vineyard, went down to New York and hooked up with the drummer from the band before. And we were a two-guitar, bass, and drums uh, band Mm -hmm. called The Flying Machine. There was another flying machine, but we were one of them, and uh, <laughs> and, and we and we played in uh, in clubs in New York City, uh, and we got a we got a long sort of uh, uh, a gig as as the house band in a place called the Night Owl Cafe, but after the band uh, uh, sort of crashed and burned, I I went home to sort of lick my wounds. Uh, I I had already uh, had had a, a run in with with substance uh, abuse and and I, I had a nascent uh, addiction problem. So I went home and basically uh, cleaned up my act and put myself back together for a while. And uh, but you know I I had um, I basically had opted away uh, from the college course of, of things. I, I had decided not to go to college. I'd spent a year, in New York playing music, and I, I wanted to continue to, to pursue that. So uh, I took my songs. I'd written a few songs and my guitar. Uh, I talked my folks into buying me a, a, a plane ticket to, to London to good visit another— Good old mom and dad. <laughs> that's right, good old mom and dad. They, they, uh, they bought me a plane ticket to go visit my, another friend from the vineyard. Uh, a guy named uh, Albie Scott, and Albie lived in Twickenham in those oh, days. Oh, my mum and dad lived in Twickenham. I lived in Twickenham for a bit when I was before I left home. That's so. It's nice Twickenham, actually. That's so funny. That's where Eel do you, did Eel Pie Island was that still going then? I can't remember. I don't that know. Was, what do you mean? Well, there was what an was island Eel- in Twickenham called Eel Pie Island, and there was a club there, a very famous club where the Stones played and. That's where they could, but it, I don't know whether it was still going then. I can't remember. But well, anyway. that was in 1968, very beginning of the year, that I went over and uh, and visited with Albie, mm-hmm. and then um, I stayed with him for a, a couple of weeks. But but then I moved into Earl's Court for a while. It, at the time, it was it was full of uh, of, of Kiwis and Aussies. Yeah, we, uh, we, at, they used to call it Kangaroo Valley, actually, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they they did because uh, what you know if you got if you got a uh, escape velocity and managed to leave New Zealand or or Australia, <laughs> it, it was such a a major proposition to 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 make it to Europe yeah. that once you got here you were going to stay for yeah. for a year it was too, anyway. Too you know, blooming far or, to go back and forth. That's right. You just couldn't do it. So. Uh, you know, typically, what would happen is pe- people would would come and and they're just traveling on the cheap, absolutely uh, as much as possible. And and uh, in London, that meant 
sort of sharing a flat in Earl's Court. So if you were looking for temporary lodging and, and to to uh, throw in with a bunch of other strangers uh, for a, on a place to live, that's where you usually wound place. up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So how did, how did you meet up with Pete, Peter Asher? Well, as I say, I, I stayed at Earl's Court for a while, but eventually I, I found a nice place in Notting Hill Gate, which was, you know, in 1968 was mm-hmm. not... Uh, was not the posh uh, uh, residence no, it that it wasn't. that it is today, but you know. So I got a, a sort of a, a basement flat there. Uh, it, I remember it had one of those meters that you would slip oh, yeah. two shilling pieces <laughs> into, and and it would buy you I don't know like twenty minutes of gas or something or <laughs> or, or or you know four hours of of, know. of the gas heater. That's yeah, it was. It was yeah, and someone would come and, and empty the coin box uh, once a week, but the. <laughs> But it was uh, it, it was lovely. Uh, I I lived there and I I met some friends of of the person who, with whom I'd originally stayed, and and they uh, encouraged me very much uh, uh, to uh, to make a demo and to try to get my music out there. And that's of course was always at the back of my mind. So uh, I did. I went to Soho and for twenty pounds I bought an hour of studio time and I made a recording. Of, mess of songs, you know, a batch of songs that I had. And I had an acetate record that looked just like an LP record in its own little sleeve. And I had a a reel-to-reel tape of this stuff. And um, my friends uh, from Notting Hill Gate started peddling this around to anyone who would listen. Eventually, I called my friend with whom I'd been in the band in New York, Danny Korchmar, when he had been with the band the year before, they had backed up Peter and Gordon on their tour of America. So Cooch had a number for Peter Asher. And I called Cooch up and I said, listen, I'm trying to get something going here with my music. Uh, do you still have a number for Peter Asher? He said, well, I got a number. I don't know if it's any good, but here it is. And sure enough, when I called Peter up, he answered the phone. Kismet, I call it. Kismet. It, it was ab- <laughs> It was absolutely the the best uh, yeah, a, a good fortune. Well, for you and for him, you know what a what a pairing. How amazing! And then, yeah, it was. so then he did he, t- he introduce you to Apple because you were on Apple, weren't you, when you first re- That's right. released in he, England? His, of course, Peter's uh, uh, sister Jane was, was dating was, Paul. Uh, was with yeah, Paul right. and. And uh, so Peter knew Paul quite well, and um, I think Paul actually knew Peter's uh, parents uh, and used to, you know, when he was ragtag uh, 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 in in London, would would get a, a hot meal there, you know, from time to time. <laughs> yeah. So so uh, uh, Peter had uh, was was very aware of what was going on with the Beatles, and uh, and also from his position as a as a sort of part of the British invasion mm-hmm. kind of cultural event that 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 the late 60s were mm. and so he he actually took a position looking for new talent for this new record label that the Beatles had started and um uh you know he heard my tape he thought you know this could this could become something and he he took me by to audition for for George and Paul and uh, and I did at that point. They were, I think, in Baker Square. Was that the name of it? It was uh, the same place where the America where the American Embassy was. 
Oh, you know, yeah, just to the to the yeah. east I, of because uh, they then moved to so Apple was the big house in Savile Row, but this might have yep. been before that. I can't, this, I can't remember this where they This was before were. they had they had rented offices in Baker Square, I think oh, okay. was the name of okay. it, or Baker Street, and and uh, but I was with but after I. Uh, signed to the label, they moved. They I was with them for the, for the move to to Savile Row and the concert on the roof and all of that stuff. Oh my but, goodness! But amazing. yeah, it was it was an amazing period of time, and it it all it all um, uh, I put advertisements in the Melody Maker and the New Musical Express. Those mm-hmm. were the two uh, trade papers right. in the music business at the time. I remember them well. I, I know, yeah. Well, anyway, we, we uh, auditioned bass players and uh, keyboard players and um, eventually chose a, a couple of guys and I taught them the songs and we went into the studio. The The Beatles were recording the White Album in Leicester Square at a, a place called Trident Sound. Mm-hmm. And um, Trident had the only eight-track recording machine in London at the time. So the Beatles wanted to use those those eight tracks. The The alternative were four-track recorders, and that's all that Abbey Road had, was these, these four tracks. So they, they uh, basically blocked out the studio at... at uh, in, in Soho, and I uh, uh, I used the time that that they weren't using. Essentially, I. So was that recording your first album then? Mm-hmm. That's right. Was, they were making the. What, they were making the, the white fir- album. Was the first album Sweet Baby James, or was that? N- no, it, it was just called James Taylor. Oh, and okay. It, it, and it was uh, on the Apple label, and the Beatles would have these long recording sessions at Trident, but when they would quit, Peter and I would come in and uh, and take over the, the studio and, and work on our stuff, sort of in the spaces between their their sessions. And, and that was, wow. I, I think that, that helped us with our budget and stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, uh, it was great because I got to listen back to a lot of that those, uh, you know, I'd come, be coming in at, at the end of their sessions, Brilliant. and I, uh, yeah, it was great. Yeah, amazing, amazing. So then, Peter, Peter had Peter moved to California by then, because you went back there with him, didn't you? You lived there with him. I did. And, and is that when you did all your recordings with Peter and and that's all, that's all right. The... Well, at the at the end of of '68, maybe. In October of '68, we had uh, recorded the album, but a man named Alan Klein, I guess, oh, probably well known, the infamous Alan Klein, <laughs> uh, infamous Alan Klein, had uh, a, 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 a sort of a, 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 a music business shark from, uh, <laughs> you know, who 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 I think the Beatles were warned off of this yeah. guy by the by the Stones, who had had also a terrible. Uh, uh, a chapter with him, but but Alan Klein came in, and I think he convinced Yoko and John that that he should manage them, and uh, uh, it was one of the things that I think finally broke up the group I, because right. Paul and George were not were not interested in this guy. They they saw him for what he was, which is a, a crook. But he's he's still he's still firmly attached to that to that fortune, and uh, he still has his uh, proboscis in that. Wow, that that's mess. unbelievable, isn't it? Talking of uh, John Lennon, you you told me the most unbelievable story last week about you bumped into Mark Chapman 
the day before the terrible... Please tell me, because it's unbelievable, this story. Yeah. Well, you know, in those days, that was in 70... I don't know when. What was what date? What, what year was John? Was John shot? Nineteen eighty. Yeah. Well, in you know, in those days, I was I was living with uh, with Carly, in uh, who who I know is a good friend of yours, and uh, and and uh, I named my daughter um, after her. <laughs> right, and and you must. But that's you because must I was have, a fan. But yeah, before I met her. But you must have come and uh, and and visited. Perhaps at that, I at did, that Central Park West. I did, because your two older children, Ben and Sally, yeah, were similar age to Carly, my daughter, and Carly, Simon Carly, in, invited us for a play date. So right. a couple of afternoons. You you weren't there, but um, so I think Ben and Carly are very similar. She was born in 78 and he was, you said, 77 or something. That's but right. they, they That's had right. they had a, a a couple of play dates because I I was in New York at that time, uh, doing a, a big show on broad a big musical on Broadway. So we we were living that we were living there. I remember. That. But anyway, tell tell your story. So you 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 were going home to your apartment, right? Which is on Central well, Park West. Well, the 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 thing I was saying is that that uh, John and Yoko lived in the Dakota, which was one building. One building to the south of uh, of on on Central Park West uh, of from the building where you had visited, and you know I was I would typically get off the subway at right at the corner of of where the uh, the Dakota was on Seventy Second and Central Park West, and um, and the the day before John was shot, I was uh, I, I was getting off the subway there and and climbing up the stairs uh, uh, to to the street. And uh, this clearly crazy, sort of overamped, tightly wound, sort of uh, uh, eyes dilated, uh, uh, sweating profusely, and uh, and and just uh, alarmingly desperate character accosted me on the way up the stairs, uh, sort of grabbed my arm and pulled me over to the side, and just started running this sort of freak spew as we used to call it of uh of 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 verbiage into mm. into my face about uh just just basically it felt like he was on a manic break you know it, mm. the guy seemed really desperately crazy and uh you know i he attached himself to me uh and i walked up to the street and uh he's basically uh, uh telling me uh, I, I can't remember by any means remember all the things he talked about he was talking about his own personal history and how he was in trouble with the cops but he was a cop but uh, and something about the CIA and then God. that he was uh, in touch with John Lennon and John was his friend and and was going to help him with his music and going to help him with his you know uh, and I got to my building uh, which thankfully had a doorman, and the doorman scraped him off, and uh, and I got away. And the next day, uh, that turns out that that was uh, Chapman, and uh, and the next day he shot John Lennon. Unbelievable. Yeah. My God, that I mean, did it must have been such a? I mean, the horrific event was unbelievable. But having that close contact, didn't it? Didn't it make you feel a bit scared and weird that? That you know, 
Ooh. Well, you know, I, my, you know, the degree to which I am known and would be a sort of a target for, for crazy people, um, is, it, you know, it's it's much. Uh, I I'm I I have a, I'm a sort of. I think of myself sort of as a a working artist, but as a minor celebrity, not really. Uh, I I think it's very much under control. Uh, I think when. When you know, uh, when when John said that they're more, we're more popular th- than Jesus, you know, it upset a lot of people. Yeah. It was also true. Yeah, absolutely. and 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 I think when when you have that number of people uh, focused on mm. you, uh, it just the statistics go up that that one of them is going to be violently crazy. I know. I know it's scary, isn't it? It's not actually. It's not worth thinking about, really. I know it well. I I know you must. Uh, uh, you know, women who who do work that's public also yeah. feel feel this sort of vulnerable. There's an aspect to it that uh, that gets really. Anyway, you know, that's the way I sort of feel about what happened to John. I feel as though, in a in a sense, um, we loved him to death. You know. Yeah, I know uh, what you mean. Yeah, th- that the the, the amount of attention uh, the the thing that amazes me really about the beatles uh, aside from their their talent and the incredible cultural thing that they represent and what what they meant to our generation the thing that amazes me is how far they managed to get before a uh, celebrity just ma- ran them you know, ran them ragged or exactly. or just clogged them up, you and, know. And they were so young as well. I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable. And, and they just kept, they kept growing album mm. after album, yeah. you know, f- Rubber Soul and Revolver mm. and then, uh, you know, Sgt. Peppers. And it, it, it just, uh, and and then the, the, the sort of Hindu uh, uh, Far Eastern connection with the, uh, uh, it just had, uh, and of course, the, the the brilliant George Martin and and what he enabled them to do, you know, it it, it simply, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing that might have been killed just by its own success. Yeah. No, um, I, I agree totally. They they are extraordinary, and, it, and the, they got so far. You know, they they just continued to reinvent themselves and to to take the next step. And uh, it, it just. But I, I think I remember- don't you? I mean, you you do it. You're you're still touring. You still record. And actually, I did. I don't know whether you know this, but I've read that you're the first act to earn t- a top. I'm reading this because I wrote it down. You're the first act to earn a top ten album in each of the last six decades. Did you know that, James? That's amazing. It's bloody amazing and quite right. That's true. Because you released American Standard in 2020, right? Yes, but uh, but American Standard is not... And that went straight in at number four, Yes, however, uh, but... but, uh, that the the decade they're talking about, of course, uh, uh, starts with uh, with Sweet Baby James, which was the seventies. Yeah, and then the eighties would have had uh, um, a couple of of possible uh, top tens, and then uh, there were a couple in the nineties as well. Then in the in the two thousand tens, there was uh, October Road. Yep, and and in the 2000 teens uh the, there was before this world and um uh, so i guess uh i've got a 
I, I probably have to to uh, uh, if I want to if I want to knock off the twenties as well. I'll have to 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 I'll have to pump up the old self promotion machine to a one one well, last I, time. I, I think it's amazing, and, and it mm. it's been written in black and white. So, and how <laughs> how and how many Grammys have you got? You've got a few of those, haven't you? I have. I've got. I've got. How many s- have you got? Go on, tell me. Tell me. Tell me. I think there are six of them at this oh, point. Oh yeah. It, de- it depends on how you count them. Sometimes, <laughs> like if you if if you count the best engineered album, that's not really me. But uh, oh, you know, listen, they're Grammys, and you've got them. Did you do you go to the award ceremonies to accept, or are you too shy? Not, a, not anymore, and not in the beginning either. You know, oh, in really? the beginning that in the beginning that felt like you know that felt like Vegas. That felt like. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it seems was, those sort of events don't seem very you somehow. I don't know you very well, but just meeting you, I don't. I, they're all. I mean, they're very big and hard, you know, to get through because they go on forever, don't they? The Oscars they are, and the Emmys, and, and and they're a scam. Basically, they sort of <laughs> they they get free content uh, mm, and yeah. and 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 a huge readership, uh, you know, huge audience. But you know, it's uh, the I find that they they tend to put a pie in your face if 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 you go, uh, so I <laughs> so I, I avoid it, I avoid it. But <laughs> yeah. but but no, but but yet yet and still, I don't mean to say that that uh, I, I think that it's uh, it's great to get a Grammy. Oh, it's amazing! You should be really really proud, and you well deserve it. I have to say. Well. And also the, the you know the the it it really m- means that the record company did their yeah. job. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and uh, and in promoting the album and getting it out there and and yeah, so yeah, it was it's uh, and and I think that that it's important to the the team that that makes yeah, exactly. an album work. Absolutely. So so I don't no, it's it's part it's part of what what you do. I think like but, promotion. But you know, but back in. Back in the early seventies, uh, if you, you know, I I remember I got um, uh, two Grammys in, in a couple of years, and uh, one was best new artist, and the second was best male vocalist. And you know, thinking of the Grammys at that point, it sort of seemed like, well, well, that's where uh, uh, Engelbert Humperdinck should go, or that's that's where uh, you know Sammy Davis Jr. or Frank Sinatra. That's that's not that's showbiz and that's that's the past and and we we felt a really i know that you know this too there was a real cultural divide oh, yeah. between Absolutely. between what had been our our parents culture our parents culture and and ours then we came along <laughs> Before we go, where where are you? We're going to put this out next week, so you will be in. In that case, I'll be in Florence. Oh, lucky you! I know, and it's a it's a it's a little theater uh, oh, called the Ver- I think it's the Verdi, uh, and oh, amazingly, is so and gorgeous. The stage is so is so slanted. You know, they they in the old days, in order to see all the acts, they you know they would basically. Uh, treat the the actors uh, uh, any way they damn well chose, but 
the the stage is so is so slanted. It's a very strange place to play because it's this uh, old fashioned. Yeah, it must offset your yeah. equilibrium. Actually, it does. My husband mainly doesn't do a lot now, but he acted a lot on stage. And he, when he did a long run on a rake stage, it would do his back in and his knees because it puts you all out of kilter. You know, if you're I, doing eight shows a week on a rake stage, it's unbelievable. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. I, you know, I, I can absolutely believe it. But of course, when you think of it, then you're you're looking at it from the audience's point of view. You can see everything that's on the stage because it's so it's you know it's going towards the vertical. So you, that's right. you know, it's really. <laughs> uh, but it it is. It's sort of. And where else you know, do you go after Italy? Just so people can buy tickets. <laughs> that's right. Well, where do we go? Um, where do you go? We. We after uh, we go to Germany, uh, in, uh, we go to Zurich, then Frankfurt, then Berlin, then Antwerp, then uh, a town in Denmark called Randers, then Stockholm, and then back to Copenhagen, and then uh, then Hamburg. We finish in oh, Hamburg. So, oh, you are all over the place. Yeah, yeah, we are, and 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 sometimes, for instance, we'll. We'll pass Copenhagen three times before we play it. <laughs> you can wave. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming back. I'll be back. Well, I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful tour. Everyone out there, get your tickets. <laughs> yeah. And thank yeah, you sure. for doing my podcast. I really, really, it's been so, I could have gone on chatting for ages and ages. I know it. But, I know um, it. I, I could too. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Twigs well, now and- we, we know each other and we know Peter and Wendy are mutual friends. I'm sure we'll our paths will cross at some point in London or America. <laughs> I, I, I know it's true. I know yeah. I'll see you soon. Anyway, thank you, James. It's been a joy. Thanks. Oh, what an amazing, lovely man he is, uh, as well as being one of the great singer-songwriters of our time. And um, get your tickets to see him live. He's, as he said, he's going to be, I think this week he's in um, Florence and other parts of Italy and then Germany and um, Amsterdam, I think he said. Anyway, you can look online, I'm sure, but he is amazing and, um, and a lovely, lovely man to boot. Anyway, see you soon. Bye. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye.
just heard a stripped media production.